Let us pray. Father, we ask that today we would behold the cross, we would see the cross in all its glory. Yes, there is shame and humiliation and death there. But in the midst of this darkness, this shame, this death, You reveal Your glory to us. May we see Your glory in the cross. May we see how the cross sums up and fulfills all Your purposes for Your Son, for Your people, for Your creation. May You shine Your light upon the cross today. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. God has given us four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of the four Gospels has been called a crucifixion story with a long introduction. That's what the Gospels are. They're crucifixion stories with long introductions. All four Gospels are really about the cross. Uh, You can see this very clearly in Mark. Mark is 16 chapters long, covers about three years of Jesus' ministry, probably three and a half years. But of those 16 chapters covering three years, the last five chapters cover one week. And indeed, the last three chapters cover one weekend when Jesus is crucified. In Mark's Gospel, everything is very fast-paced. This is the Gospel of action. It's a Gospel which Jesus is constantly on the move, immediately doing this, and then immediately going over here to do that. It's a Gospel of action. It's a fast-paced story until we get to the crucifixion. And then Mark slows everything down and goes into excruciating detail. But even before we get to Mark's slow motion coverage of Christ's death, there is foreshadowing. The cross is anticipated. The cross is casting its shadow upon the story all along the way. Three times in Mark, in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, Jesus gives a clear prophecy of His coming death, saying this is what it's all about. This is what it means for me to be Messiah. You've identified me as the Messiah. Now let me tell you what that means. It means I'm going to die. And I'm going to die on a cross. Each one of these three prophecies follows the same pattern. Jesus predicts His death using language that comes from several Old Testament texts that are twisted together into a prophecy, a prediction about His death. The disciples don't believe, and so they misunderstand, and so they make some huge blunder. And then Jesus gives them some kind of correction and further instruction to bring them back on track. Every one of the three prophecies fits that same pattern. A a prediction with language from the Old Testament, disciples don't get it, Jesus corrects them. The first prediction is in Mark 8.31. Jesus says the Son of Man will suffer many things and will be rejected and killed and rise three days later. Jesus uses the the language of the Old Testament at many points in this prediction. Just one example of this. He speaks of Him being rejected. This language of being rejected comes from Psalm 118. It's a key word in Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In Isaiah 53, the the servant songs of Isaiah are crucial to Mark's understanding of the cross. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, the suffering servant is rejected. And so when Jesus uses that language of rejection, He's saying, I am the chief cornerstone. I will be rejected by Israel's builders, 
by the chief priests and by the scribes. I'll be rejected by Israel's leaders, but I will become the chief cornerstone in the new temple God is building. I am the suffering servant, and yes, I will be rejected, but only so that my people might be accepted. I'll be rejected and experience God's wrath so my people can be blessed and accepted. Well, the disciples don't get this. They have no concept of a Messiah who suffers. And so Peter pulls Jesus aside to try to correct Him. Peter is thinking of a kingdom without a cross. It's a kind of satanic counter-strategy to what Jesus has just announced. And so Jesus rebukes Peter in turn. He says, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of men, not the things of God. And he goes on to explain to them just what it means to be his follower. It means you have to deny yourself, take up your own cross, and come after him. That's the first passion prediction. You see the pattern there. The second prediction comes in Mark 9, 30, verses 32. Jesus says, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men and killed, and then will rise on the third day. Again, a lot of Old Testament language at work here. Note that language of betrayal. Psalm 41, verse 9, speaks of the psalmist being betrayed by a friend with whom he had shared bread. That's what Jesus is predicting here. He will be betrayed by one of His own. He'll be betrayed to death. And when He is betrayed, that will fulfill divine prophecy. But again, the disciples are clueless. And as they're traveling along the way, the disciples begin to argue over which of them will be the greatest when the kingdom comes. And so again, Jesus has to correct them. And so He takes a little child into His arms and He says to the disciples, if any one of you desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Jesus says, whoever receives one of these little children in My name receives Me. He's teaching them about the humility that will characterize His kingdom and His followers in His kingdom. Then in chapter 10, Jesus again predicts His death. The third and climactic passion prediction. He says, The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes and condemned to death and delivered over to the Gentiles who will kill Him and the third day He will rise again. Again, a lot of Old Testament language is used here. But just note this, being delivered over to the Gentiles, that's Old Testament language for the curse of Israel, uh, the curse that would fall on Israel when she was unfaithful, the curse of exile. Psalm 106 speaks this way, Israel being handed over to the Gentiles, to the nations. Ezra 9 speaks this way, a host of Old Testament passages say that when Israel is in sin, when she is faithless towards God, her punishment will be that she will be handed over to the Gentiles. And so what is Jesus saying? When he says he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, he's saying he will experience the fate of unfaithful Israel. The faithful one will suffer exile for his faithless people so they can experience exodus. That's what he's saying. The curse of the covenant, the curse of exile, being handed over to the Gentiles will fall on me. I will be exiled so you can be exodus. That's what he's saying his cross will accomplish. But again, same pattern here. The disciples have no clue what Jesus is talking about. They just don't get it. And so in the very next story, James and John come to Jesus asking if they can have the best positions in the administration when Jesus inaugurates His kingdom. They want the best seats at the kingdom table. And this provides an opportunity for Jesus to teach them about true Greatness to correct them. He says, whoever desires to be great among you, all shall be your servant. 
Now, it's this third passion prediction we really want to look at this week and then into the next. But first, let me point out a couple more features of this part of Mark's Gospel. This is a very distinct section in Mark's Gospel from chapter 8, verse 22, all the way through chapter 10, verse 52. It's a, it's a clearly cut-out section in Mark's Gospel. First, this part of Mark's Gospel is known as the way section because in this part of Mark's Gospel, Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem. And it keeps calling attention to that in the narrative, how Jesus is on the way. Mark's Gospel has a lot to say about the way, but most of the references to the way are concentrated in this part of the Gospel. But you have to understand that language of the way is loaded language. Yes, this is a geographic journey from Galilee to Golgotha. But more than that, it's a theological journey. The way of the cross, the way to the cross, is the way of the Lord. It's the way of wisdom, it reveals to us what God is doing. The way to the cross, the way to the cross reveals the way of the cross, which is the way of wisdom. It is the way of the Lord. It shows us what God is up to in the ministry of Jesus. Mark opens his gospel back in chapter one with a quotation from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 40. We find that John the Baptist came as the forerunner to prepare the way of the Lord. And now Jesus is traveling in that way. He's traveling in the way of the Lord. And that way will reach its destination at Golgotha, at the place of crucifixion. And the real question throughout this section is, as Jesus is traveling this way to the cross, and the way of the cross, the way of wisdom, the way of the Lord, the question is, are the disciples really with Him? They're following geographically, but are they following theologically? They're following along geographically, but are they really following Jesus in the way? Do they really get it? That's a huge question in this section. Jesus is on the way. He knows where He's going, but do the disciples. The other thing to notice is that this section in Mark's Gospel is bracketed by healing miracles that have to do with restoring sight to the blind. This section in Mark's Gospel is framed by miracles in which Jesus restores sight. And so the movement along the way is movement from blindness to sight. As Jesus leads His disciples on the way, He's opening their eyes. And so in Mark 8, this section opens with Jesus healing the blind man at Bethsaida. And it's an unusual miracle because He heals the man in two stages. And really the miracle is also a parable. Of sorts. It's an illustration. It shows that Jesus will heal the spiritual blindness of his disciples, but he won't do so all at once. It's going to be a process. In the first stage of his healing their blindness, they come to see that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter recognizes that. He recognizes Jesus as Messiah a bit later in chapter 8. But then the second stage of their healing is for them to see what Messiahship really means. That Messiahship means humble service and sacrificial love. Messiahship means the cross. This section of Mark's Gospel is completed at the end of chapter 10 when Jesus heals blind Bartimaeus. And after Bartimaeus is healed, he's cried out for mercy and he's received mercy from the Son of David. And then it says, after his sight has been restored, he followed Jesus on the way. 
He saw his need for mercy. And so he's now, now that he's been given his sight, he can follow Jesus on the way. Because Bartimaeus can now see, he follows Jesus on the way to the cross. He takes up his cross and he follows. He shows a humility and a dependence upon mercy that the disciples have refused to show up to this point. Bartimaeus gets it. He sees not only that Jesus is Messiah, but what it means that Jesus is the one who shows mercy. That's really what the disciples must learn. They must learn that following Jesus doesn't mean what they think it means. Messiahship doesn't mean what they think it means. At this point, the disciples really still cannot comprehend a Messiah who suffers or a King who serves. They can't see clearly, even when the truth is plainly spoken to them, even when the truth is right there in front of them, they can't see it. They're on the way, but not really. Their blindness is being healed, but it's not yet fully healed. And so really, when Jesus starts talking about His death, they can only see that as bad news. They can't see Jesus' death as good news. They can't see that that's what they need is for their Messiah to die for them. In verse 32, Jesus says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. That word behold just means see. It means behold. Behold with your eyes. See. That's not a throwaway term in Mark's Gospel. The whole problem is the disciples can't behold. They can't see what it means for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. They're not beholding what the way to Jerusalem means. They don't see it. See, this this is the scene that Mark gives to us in this section in Mark 10. Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. He's in the way of the Lord going on His way to the cross in Jerusalem. He's followed by a crowd. He's going before them. They are following Him. He's leading the way. He's showing the way. And as the people follow Him, they are amazed and afraid. And then He takes His disciples aside, the twelve who are sort of the the inner ring, the inner circle. They're the insiders. They get the special instruction. And He tells them again what's going to happen. He again predicts His coming death in detail. Now look at this. Look at what He says. We, We need to look at this a little more closely. Jesus says when He gets to Jerusalem, He says the Son of Man will be betrayed. Now stop right there. Son of Man. In all three of these passion predictions in Mark's Gospel, Jesus self-identifies as the Son of Man. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but what does Jesus mean when He calls Himself the Son of Man? Well, Son of Man really means Son of Adam. When Paul talks about Jesus as the last Adam or as the second Adam, that's what Jesus means by Son of Man. That's how he's identifying himself, is as the new Adam, the head of a new humanity, a new human race. The Son of Man, then, of course, is the one who will have all dominion, just as the first Adam was given dominion, but then lost it and squandered it when he fell. This Son of Man, this Son of Adam, this new Adam, will have all dominion. All dominion over the whole creation. He's a kingly figure, a royal figure. And indeed, in Daniel 7, one of the most important passages for understanding this, in Daniel 7, Daniel the prophet has a vision in which one like a son of man ascends to the Ancient of Days in the heavens and takes possession of the kingdom. 
And all the empires of the world, represented by different beasts, are subdued by him. Just like the first Adam had dominion over the beasts of the field, the animals, this new Adam has dominion over the beastly empires of the world. But then as the vision continues in Daniel 7, the Son of Man shares his reign with the saints of the Most High God. He shares the kingdom with his people. In fact, that's probably why James and John come and ask for positions of power in the very next story. They see Jesus identifying himself as the Son of Man, and so they figure the Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem to be enthroned. He's going to the Ancient of Days who dwells in the temple. He's going to be enthroned as King. And so if he's going to be enthroned as king, then the saints will also enter into kingly glory. James and John are thinking, we're saints of the Most High God. The Son of Man is about to enter into his kingdom. That means we've got to get ready for kingly glory too. And so they figure, hey, why don't we jump to the front of the line? We'll ask for the best positions in the kingdom. The disciples think they're on the way to Jerusalem for an award ceremony. They think when they get there, trophies are going to be passed out. There's going to be confetti and prizes and and trumpets playing and a big celebration. They think the way is a victory parade, a, a victory march. They're thinking all about a coronation, not a crucifixion. They think this is going to be like David's march to Jerusalem to take the throne. In 2 Samuel 5, David marches to Jerusalem to become king to enter into his kingly glory. And oh sure, David had to fight some Jebusites when he got there. He had to drive them off. And I'm sure the disciples were thinking, yeah, when we get to Jerusalem, there's probably going to be a few skirmishes. We'll have to do a little bit of fighting. Maybe that's what Jesus is talking about when he mentions suffering. But they think they're going to Jerusalem to conquer They're thinking to themselves, we've seen Jesus feed multitudes with the meagerest of provisions. We've seen Jesus walk on water. We've seen Jesus heal the sick and raise the dead. There's nothing He can't do. With this guy on our side leading the way, we're going to conquer. Surely that's what's going to happen when we get to Jerusalem. And so they think of their march to Jerusalem as a kind of victory parade. The disciples may have also been thinking about Isaiah. Isaiah talks about the way of the Lord, after all. The prophet Isaiah describes the new exodus as the Lord triumphantly marching His people to Jerusalem. The Lord makes His way to Jerusalem as the culmination of His new exodus. And when He gets there, when He arrives in Jerusalem, Isaiah 52.7 says, The Lord reigns. That's the good news. The new exodus. It's completed at Jerusalem. And God enters into His kingly glory. And so the disciples are thinking, yes, this is it. We're marching along the way in Isaiah's new exodus. The disciples no doubt saw themselves as processing with the Lord's anointed into the holy city to to set up shop in a kingly way. To set up the kingdom. Now of course when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, He is going to set up His kingdom in Jerusalem. But He's not going to do so the way the disciples expect. He is going to confound their expectations. Yes, He will ascend to the Ancient of Days as Daniel 7 says. He will establish God's kingdom. He will complete the new exodus in Jerusalem. But He's not going to do any of those things in the way the disciples expect. 
Yeah, he's going to be enthroned in Jerusalem, but the throne will take the form of a cross. And yes, he will be crowned in Jerusalem, but it will be with a crown of thorns. And Jesus is telling them this repeatedly. He's talking about His coming, suffering, and death. So they will know when it happens, this suffering is not some kind of mistake. It's not some kind of glitch in the plan. It is the plan. And indeed, this suffering has been the plan all along. And so Jesus even gives details so it will be unmistakable when it happens. Which if they had thought about these details, not just in a historical kind of way, but in a theological way, they would have seen why Jesus had to die. Jesus says He will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn Him to death. Think about that, not just as a historical detail to be fulfilled, but what it means theologically. See, the crucifixion is full of ironies and paradoxes and surprises. The cross is the surprising fulfillment of God's plan. Think about the chief priests. The chief priests are going to condemn Jesus to die. What was the job of the chief priests in Israel? It was their responsibility to lead Israel in worship, especially through offering sacrifices. The chief priests condemned animals to die all the time. That was their job. They killed animals and shed blood to make atonement for people's sin. What is Jesus saying the chief priests are about to do when He gets to Jerusalem? Unknowingly, unwittingly, they are about to offer the ultimate perfect and final sacrifice for sin when they condemn Jesus to be killed. When they hand Jesus over to be killed, they don't recognize it. But they're actually fulfilling what their priesthood is all about. They're going to be doing what priests do. They're going to be making atonement for sin through the shedding of blood. They ironically fulfill their priestly office in spite of themselves when they make Jesus their sacrificial victim. They lay hands on Jesus just like the priest would lay hands on an animal. They kill Jesus. They condemn Jesus to death just as the priest would condemn that animal to death. But what they don't understand is that they condemn Jesus to death precisely so through His death He can justify His people. They don't understand it, but when they shed Jesus' blood, they will be making a covering for sins once and for all. They will be fulfilling the meaning of their priesthood. He will be the sacrificial lamb the priests offer. So now the angel of death will pass over the people so that sins will be covered and wrath will be averted. Jesus will be the sacrifice without spot or blemish. You see the irony in that. Jesus is not just giving them some kind of historical detail that they can check off. He's showing them what His death means. He's going to be the sacrifice the priests offer to bring an end to sin. What about the scribes? The scribes also will condemn Jesus to death. What about their role? Who were the scribes? They were experts in the law. They interpreted and applied the law for Israel. But what do the scribes do when they meet the one who embodies the law in himself? What do they do with Jesus? In Jesus, they meet the one who is the fulfillment of the law in himself. Jesus embodies the law. He's the goal of the law. The law's purpose is realized in him. The law has been pointing to him all along. He is the law made flesh. He's the word made flesh. He's the law made flesh. 
God put the law of Moses on tablets of stone. Now He puts it in fleshly form in the man Jesus. But what do these scribes, what do the experts in the law do when they meet the law's fulfillment, when they meet the law in person? They use the law against the one who is the law incarnate. They've been misinterpreting the law of Moses all along. And so, of course, they misinterpret the one who fulfills the law. But note this. See what they're doing. They use the law against the law giver. They use the law against the law fulfiller. They twist the law and break the law in order to condemn the only one who ever perfectly kept the law. Now again, do you see the irony in that? The priests act unironically because they unwittingly offer Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. The scribes act ironically because they accuse Jesus of law-breaking so actually He can end up dying for lawbreakers as the law-keeper. See all this that's going on? Of course, the language that Jesus uses here too about His suffering recalls Isaiah's suffering servant. Isaiah's suffering servant is also in play here. This becomes especially clear in the next section we'll look at next week where Jesus says He came to serve. See, the suffering servant in Isaiah and now Jesus talks about coming to serve. He says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom. Jesus is identifying Himself as Isaiah's suffering servant. And in fact, what Jesus is doing is twining together. He's combining strands of Old Testament prophecy the disciples never would have put together. Jesus is saying, I am both the triumphant Son of Man who will have all dominion and the suffering servant of the Lord who will give His life as a ransom. And in fact, we see Jesus put it together this way. He reigns, but He reigns through suffering. Yes, He enters His kingdom, but He enters through a cross. Yes, He's coronated as King, but He's coronated on a tree. Yes, He reveals glory, but His glory is revealed in His humility. Yes, He is strong, but His strength is revealed in His weakness. At His birth, the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest. But at His death, He will bring glory to God in the lowest. His glory will be revealed in His descent. His descent into pain and humiliation and suffering and darkness and finally death. Jesus will reveal the highest glory by going to the lowest place. He will reveal the glory of God in the lowliest place of all, the place of death. God reveals His highest glory in the lowest place. The place of death. God's glory shines brightest in the darkness of the cross. Now, had the disciples read Isaiah more closely, I think they could have seen this. They had no excuse for not getting this. They could have seen how glory and humility align. Glory and humility are not opposed to one another. They're a pair. They just go together. They go together like peanut butter and jelly. They go together like green eggs and ham. Glory and humility. Just consider this. A lot of ways to look at this, but just consider this. In Isaiah 6... Isaiah has a vision of the Lord in His glory and splendor and majesty in the temple. And the prophet, as he sees God exalted in His temple, he says, I saw the Lord on His throne high and lifted up. 
high and lifted up. But fast forward in Isaiah to the suffering servant passages, the beginning of the suffering servant passages, in Isaiah 52 verse 13, Isaiah speaks of the servant being high and lifted up. Only now, this being lifted up is being lifted up on a cross to suffer. It's the lifting up of the sacrifice. The same phrase that portrays the Lord's glory in the temple in Isaiah 6 describes the servant in the midst of his suffering in chapter 52. See, Isaiah has already linked glory and humility. He's already connected exaltation and lowliness. He's already shown us that the God who is high and lifted up in majestic glory is the same one who will be lifted up on the tree of the cross to suffer. And indeed, Isaiah shows us what this suffering means, why he must suffer. He shows us the meaning of the servant's death. His death is a substitutionary death. Just listen to this out of Isaiah 53 Verses 4 to 6, speaking of the servant, Isaiah says, He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. By His stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid our iniquity on Him. You see what Isaiah is doing? Isaiah is showing why the servant must suffer. He's showing the relationship between our sin and his suffering. That the suffering servant will die because he must. He will die in our place. His death will be for the sins of his people. Everything about this is substitutionary. It's Jesus acting on behalf of His people and in place of His people, in union with His people. Even when Jesus goes into the details of how He will be treated, He talks about being scourged. And of course, Isaiah said, by His stripes we will be healed. He talks about getting spit upon. Well, you go to the law, Leviticus 15 says that when someone spits on you, it makes you unclean. For Jesus to be spat upon means He will bear our uncleanness in order to cleanse us. See, Jesus is going to be treated with contempt. They're going to make a mockery of Him because they don't take His claims to be a king seriously. But the reason they don't take those claims seriously is because they don't know what kingship is all about. They don't know what kingship truly is. And this is what Jesus wants to do. He wants to open the eyes of His disciples to see this. His suffering and dying in Jerusalem. This is not bad news. This is good news. Indeed, it's the best news of all. Because when He suffers and dies, He's doing so in the place of His sinful people. The righteous for the unrighteous. The clean for the unclean. He lays down His life in order to be a sacrifice to cover our sins, to cleanse us, to secure our forgiveness, to bring us peace. He will suffer shame and death so we can enjoy life and glory. He will be doomed and cursed so we can be blessed and rescued. He will be condemned so we can be acquitted. See, that's what it's all about. Isaiah 52 and 53, this servant song, it uses the language of Israel's sacrificial system, language that comes from the law about sacrifices to show what the servant will do. 
But the servant songs show us something else. They show us because He suffers, He will also reign. The One who bore our griefs and died our death is the same One who will be exalted. Because He is lifted up on the cross, He will be lifted up in glory. The disciples should see this. They should behold this, but they're blind. They should see this connection between reigning and serving. Perhaps they also could have seen it had they considered more carefully Israel's prototypical king David. See, this is everywhere in the Old Testament. It's there in the life of David. David is a son of man figure. He's a new Adam figure. He wrote in Psalm 8. Speaking to the Lord, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? David is a new Adam. He's a son of man figure. A royal figure. But you know what else? He's also called the Lord's servant more than any other figure in the Old Testament. In fact, even in Isaiah, Isaiah, in Isaiah 37, the Lord refers to David as my servant. I think to prepare us for what's coming in the servant songs at the end of the book. To show us this connection between David and suffering. To show us this connection between royalty and servanthood. To become more explicit in that song in chapters 52 and 53. The life of David shows the true king reigned by serving. Who is the true king? Who is the true son of man? He is a servant. And this is what Jesus will do. He will bring us life by dying for us. He will be condemned so we can be justified. He will take the punishment that is ours so we can enter into the glory that is His. Jesus wants them, as His disciples, to look at what's going to happen through these Old Testament lenses. These various texts from the Old Testament. Jesus is invoking. And when you look at Jesus and you look at the cross through these lenses provided by Scripture, what do you see? Who is Jesus? Jesus is the One who fulfills all of God's purposes for humanity and for creation. Who is Jesus? He is the promise-remembering, sin-forgetting Savior. He is the covenant-keeping, curse-bearing, sorrow-caring, wrath-averting, sacrifice-offering, guilt-removing, place-taking, servant king. The one in whom we find God's glory revealed. He is the new David, the son of man, the suffering servant, all rolled into one. All these lines of prophecy converge and find their fulfillment in Him. But the only way to see clearly The only way to behold as Jesus commands us to behold is to have our eyes open to the paradox of the cross. The paradoxical glory that is revealed there at Golgotha. It's the cross that brings all of this together. It's the cross. You might wonder, with so much evidence that God's Messiah would triumph through suffering, with so much biblical data to show that exaltation comes through humiliation. How did the disciples miss it? How did they miss it? They knew the Scriptures. Why were they blind to this? Why did the chief priests miss it? The chief priests offered sacrifice every day. 
How did they not know Messiah would be sacrificed? That His death would be the great final and effective sacrifice to take away sin forever? How did they miss that they were in the business of shedding blood every day? How did they not know that Messiah would enter His kingdom through the shedding of blood? What about the scribes? How did they miss it? They poured over the law, studying its every detail. How did they not recognize the one the law pointed to when He arrived? The disciples missed it. The chief priests missed it. The scribes missed it. And I would suggest they all missed it for the same reason. They did not want to see a crucified Messiah. They did not want to see a suffering King because they wanted to avoid suffering and humiliation themselves. They thought, well, if our Messiah can avoid suffering, if He can avoid the cross, that means when we enter His kingdom, we can avoid suffering and the cross ourselves. They wanted a kingdom without a cross because quite frankly, that's what we all want, isn't it? A kingdom without a cross. Glory without sacrifice. Exaltation without having to go through humiliation. The mountaintop experience without having to pass through the valley. Isn't that what we all want? And isn't that why we too miss it? We miss the glory of the cross. Let me tell you. A longing for power without being willing to suffer or a longing for glory without being willing to take up your cross is blinding. It blinds you to reality. It blinds you to your own weaknesses and sins. It blinds you to what is really true. And so, when Jesus goes to the cross, yes, He goes as the forerunner. He goes as the trailblazer. He goes to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But when He goes to the cross, He's also showing us the way we must travel. He is leading His disciples in the way to Jerusalem, in the way of the cross, so that His disciples can follow Him there, so His disciples can become like the Master. If He is taking up His cross, we must take up our crosses as well. See, the scandal of the cross, the scandal of the cross is not just that our sins are so great that only the death of the Son of God could cover them and forgive them. The scandal of the cross is also we are called to take up our crosses and make the cross our own pattern of life. And again, I think the disciples should have seen this. The disciples knew when the Son of Man took possession of the kingdom, the saints of the Most High God would share in that rule. They were right about that. Daniel 7 shows that. It's very interesting. Daniel 7 shifts from the singular Son of Man who takes possession of the kingdom to the plural saints of the Most High God who share in that kingdom, who rule in union with the Son of Man. But let me tell you something. The book of Isaiah has that same kind of singular to plural dynamic. The same kind of thing happens in the book of Isaiah with the suffering servant. In Isaiah 49-53, to the servant is singular. There is one suffering servant. The suffering servant is a singular figure. But beginning in Isaiah 54 and going through chapter 66, the singular servant becomes a multitude of servants. So in Isaiah 53.11, there is one servant mentioned. 
But this servant inaugurates a new Israel. And the citizens of this new Israel are king or servants as well. Yes, they share in his kingly glory, but they do so precisely by serving. And so Isaiah 53.11 speaks of a singular servant, but 54.17 speaks of servants, plural. Servants of the Lord who share in His suffering. Who share in His humility. Who also live lives of sacrifice. And that's what Jesus wants His disciples to see. That's what He goes on to teach them in the next story in Mark chapter 10. If the disciples want to be great if they want to be kings, if they want glory, what must they do? They must serve. Jesus intends to create a kingdom of servants. A new humanity in which reigning is identified with serving. In which there is no slippage between the reigning and the serving. He intends to create a kingdom of servants. A people who reign through suffering and sacrifice. Jesus drinks that cup of sacrificial service, we must drink it too. Jesus is baptized with this baptism. We must be baptized with it also. Jesus takes up His cross. We must follow after Him taking up our crosses as well. Jesus is the unique servant King. He does this all in a unique way that only He can do. He's the King through whose lowliness exaltation comes. He's the King through whose suffering salvation is accomplished. He's the King through whose service glory is brought to life. But in Him, in union with Him, through Him, as we follow after Him, we are a kingdom of servants as well. And how do we reign? How do we show off our royal status? It is by laying down our lives. Laying down our lives for one another and for the sake of the world. That is our calling. To bring glory to God in the lowest. To humble ourselves. And in stooping, knowing that God will exalt us and God will reveal His glory. We die to ourselves that we might live with Christ. As we die to ourselves, as we admit our weakness and live in weakness, we experience the power of the kingdom and the power of Christ's resurrection at work in us. What is the calling of the church? We suffer and serve our way to victory. We limp to greatness. Kingdom glory flows to suffering servants. The cross rules. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that You would open our eyes that we might behold the way to Jerusalem, that we might behold the cross, we might see the cross for what it is. And that we might walk in the way of the cross as the only way to greatness and glory. That we might see that dying to ourselves is the only way to live. That humbling ourselves is the only way to be exalted. May we truly be a kingdom of servants. Like our King Christ Jesus who served us. And in His name we pray. Amen.